Good morning. How are we? Doing good? All right, no time for small talk. Let's crank it up. Nehemiah chapter 1. That's where we are today. It's a book about midway through the Old Testament. And we are kicking off a new series today that we're going to be in for probably the rest of this fall, all the way through probably early December. We are entitling it Nehemiah, a people on mission. And um, I have been so excited getting ready for this that I've been, I've been like standing in front of a mirror shadow boxing this week. Uh, did my best Rocky Balboa imitation, even got a pair of gloves, cut off the fingers, thought about going to a meatpacking joint and just beating on a piece of beef. But I'm excited. Some of you that remember the Rocky movies remember that. He also leaned up against the wall with a tennis ball and he'd bounce it. Thought about doing that too. All right. All right. As you're finding Nehemiah, um, you, you may be wondering what in the world does a Nehemiah have to do with us? This was a book that was written. It's basically a journal entry by a man named Nehemiah who was just a regular guy. And he becomes the leader of God's people. And we're going to go through the history here in just a moment. But it was a book written over 2,500 years ago. Basically the journal entries of this man. And uh, we're entitling this series of messages, Nehemiah, a people on mission. Because, because what we're going to be looking at here over the next few months is us together as a young church building something Far bigger than just our individual lives together for Jesus in our time and place in our city for his name and fame. So we're going to be in it for the rest of this this fall. I want to encourage you to read the scriptures that we're going to start with, uh, that we're going to cover that next Sunday. I'll be sending it out on email. And if you miss any of the messages, um, we're going to be posting them all online. You can pick them up via our podcast or you can listen to them directly from our website. And we'll also have all the notes that we'll post. All that will be up by Monday following the previous Sunday. And uh, here's going to be our approach. We're going to run on this Nehemiah message kind of on two tracks. The first and primary track that we're going to run on is we're going to look at what Nehemiah has to say to us from, from, a, from a corporate view as kind of a whole church body. We're going to look at it, what, what God is saying to us as a people. I think that too often in American Christianity, we tend to kind of, because we're very individualistic, rugged, personal people, we tend to look at the Bible and church and community, basically what we can get out of it. And so we just kind of come to get a spiritual fix and then, and then uh, look at the Bible as just some book that we kind of uh, glean some moral ethics from so that we can live a better life. And I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't give us those things, but the primary purpose of the scriptures and the primary purpose of salvation is, is that Jesus comes to save us as individuals so that we can be a community together, that together as a local church with the universal church that would be on a mission for Jesus together. So we're going to look at it from a, a, a corporate sense as a local church together organized together for Jesus. And then secondly, we're going to look at some personal application as well. And then, and then finally, something I want to tell you that I just, uh, I want you to understand what that is my heart and one of our values here at Crosspoint is we're going to work our way through this whole book. Um, you can read ahead this afternoon and see that chapters three and chapter seven are basically lists of really long, hard to pronounce Hebrew names. And um, you're, I'm sure you're wondering what, what's Brad going to get out of that chapter. Well, Come, we'll, we'll, we'll find out that Sunday. But um, here's this value that we have here. It is that, that we come to the Bible first and that the Bible is our, 
our authoritative rule of life, we start with the Bible. In fact, most of what we want to do here, and I, and I feel like I kind of need to repent to you because we haven't looked at a book in a while, but what, one of our values here is to just preach through books of the Bible and then look at those books of the Bible, what they say to us, and then, and then pull out of them what God is speaking to us through a book rather than starting with a topic and then just kind of cherry-picking through the Scriptures to see where it kind of says something about that. What that does when we do that is it teaches us to be selfish. It teaches us to look at the Bible as just kind of like a, a bag of goodies that we eventually, like the treasure box, you know, when you're good in school on Friday. And, and if you didn't get your name on the board, you just kind of grab something out of the box. Well, that's not what the Bible is. We need to look at the Bible as a storyline. And so... Most of what we want to do here is preach through books of the Bible. I haven't done it in a while, and I repent to you for that. We're going to be in Nehemiah for the rest of the year, and then in January, February, we're going to start Colossians, and uh, it's going to be awesome. So, all right, let's pray, and then we're going to get going. Nehemiah chapter 1. Lord, thank you for your word. You are our refuge and our strength. Very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be moved Though the mountains be carried into the heart of the sea, though the market collapses, though the dollar plunges, though the, though the politicians are selfish, though the moral fabric of our nation seems to be declining, we will not fear, though the earth be moved. The waters roar and tremble, the mountains tremble at the swelling of the sea. But God, as the scriptures say, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and we're part of that city, the church. And you will not forsake us. So Lord, as we come to your word today, I pray that you'd give us alertness. I pray that you'd give me clarity. And I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would fill this room and it wouldn't be just church in the south where we check a religious box but that we would come into this room and that God as we open up this beautiful ancient book that you would use it to pierce our hearts and to illuminate our eyes to your truth for us in our day in our age in our city in our time and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we've got to do a little bit of work before we start reading Nehemiah. First, just to give you a brief history of this little thing we like to call the Old Testament, <laughs> up until this point where we are in Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah, although it is midway through the Old Testament as far as where the books are lined up, it is chronologically more towards the end of, really at the very end chronologically of the timeline of the Old Testament. So... As most of you know, I think the Old Testament begins with Genesis, and we have the creation of, of, of the world and the universe and Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God, and that brings in a whole set of consequences that leads to debauchery and kind of like a Jerry Springer episode, except in um, um, ancient times. And that leads us to Genesis chapter 11, where God uh, sees this man Abram, and he calls this pagan 
sinful wanderer and he calls this man Abram, gives him another name, Abraham, and calls him and through this man he makes a covenant with him and he begins to form a people for through which he will bless all the peoples of the earth. And he promises this man, Abraham, just a few things. He says, I will give you land, I will give you offspring, and I will bless you so that through you I can bless all the peoples of the earth. And so Abraham, the rest of the the rest of the book of Genesis is just a story of Abraham and his descendants, Jacob, Isaac, and um, Joseph. And, and you all know the story. Remember, Father Abraham had many sons. And if you got any Sunday school time in you at all, if you were a little kid, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all clap our hands or whatever. I can't remember what it is. Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. And so Abraham becomes this patriarch, and the rest of Genesis is just a story of the debauchery and the rebellion and the folly of his sons, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so at the end of Genesis, we have Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his sons then selling their little brother, Joseph, into slavery. But even through that evil act, God is providentially in control of his people. That Remember, he formed back in Abraham, and there's a famine in this promised land that Abraham's descendants are in. And because they're in this famine where they have no food, they have to migrate to Egypt to find food, but lo and behold, the brother that they sold into slavery has become, through the favor of God in this pagan Egyptian king, he has become the governor of Egypt, and he receives his brothers who treated him so poorly and rescues the nation of Israel and allows them to eat. And so now the people have gone from the promised land, out of the promised land, into Egypt, because of their folly and disobedience. And then just a few generations later, they become honored guests. They move from being honored guests to being slaves. And that's where the book of Exodus picks up. And then God raises up this man named Moses who sets his people free. And, and he, 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 lead, he leads his people through the Red Sea. You guys have heard that story. They didn't save themselves. They didn't, you know, gin up a whole bunch of determination and say, we're going we're gonna to conquer the Egyptians. God rescues his people by himself from a wicked king. They go through the Red Sea and then they wander in the desert trying to get back to this land that God promised Abraham and his descendants. And what should have taken two weeks takes them 40 years. And they wander around in the desert and eventually Moses dies. And then Moses' successor, a young man named Joshua, becomes the leader of God's people. And Joshua takes them back into the promised land across the Jordan, I'm sorry, the Jordan River. <laughs> and finally God's people are back in the promised land, but they haven't been there for years and and so it's messed up. And so there's a battle, right? They're, they're where they should be, but things aren't as they should be. And so they begin to mumble and grumble and moan. And there's this period of judges where some judges lead God's people and try and set things in order. Even though they're where they should be, things are not quite as they should be. And then they begin to complain to God. And they say, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. And God is saying, well, I, I am your king. Am I not good enough for you? But because of their rebellion... And the hardness of their heart, he grants their request so that they can be like the other nations. And he gives them a king. And he raises up this man named Saul. And Saul starts off well, but eventually he slips into folly and bows down to the fear of man. 
and disobeys God and God takes his kingship from him and gives it to a little shepherd boy named David who becomes the great King David. And with King David, we see the the beginning of the establishment of the reign and the order that God intended for his people. And David, with his people in this promised land, begins to build this holy, sacred city called Jerusalem. And David has this dream and this vision and this desire to build a temple in this holy city so that God could could be worshipped there and God's presence could be in this temple. And from this holy city and this temple, God could bless all the peoples of the earth. And so through David, God begins to restore his people, bringing them back into the land, giving them this city and giving them this temple in this city from which he would bless all the peoples of the earth, just like he promised Abraham years and years and years ago. But David, of course, in his folly, um, makes some mistakes and eventually dies. And he doesn't actually get to build the temple. But his son, King Solomon, succeeds him and does build the temple. And Solomon builds this incredible, beautiful temple that is in the city of Jerusalem. And Solomon lives a long life, but eventually Solomon dies. And then there's this civil war sort of between uh, the nation of Israel, and it's divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdoms of Israel and the southern kingdoms of Judah. And for several generations, God's people divided in this state are led by wicked Mostly wicked, a few good ones, but mostly wicked, wicked kings who lead God's people down into an ever-decreasing spiral of debauchery, both morally and politically. And just a few hundred years after we have this beautiful temple built in Jerusalem and this city of God where God tabernacles with his people and makes his name great throughout all the earth, we have Israel falling to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire. And so God's people are now taken in exile away from where they should be. And Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked pagan king, destroys the temple and destroys the city of Jerusalem. And if you, if you read the book of Daniel, that's the story there. He takes Daniel and three of his Hebrew friends and all of the best and brightest young Hebrew youth and takes them away to the Babylonian capital and leaves Jerusalem, the temple and the city in waste. But God is sovereign. And through Daniel in exile, he speaks to him and raises him up as a prophet to this pagan king. And he tries to do some things to Daniel, throws him in a, a fire furnace. Problem is he didn't actually burn And so that begins to convince Nebuchadnezzar that something might be up. And so eventually Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan Babylonian king, makes one of the most profound statements of the sovereignty of God in the whole scriptures. He says in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, something along along the lines of God, this is a pagan king that God has raised up to punish his people. And now his heart is getting changed. And he says, God, you're sovereign. There's no one like you. Nobody can thwart your hand. Eventually he dies, and his son Belshazzar takes power, and he's a wicked, sorry sucker, and he's taunting God's people, and he thinks he's so bad, he's, calling a, he's having a banquet feast, and he's, he's, he's taunting and saying he's going to make his name great. And during one of his first banquets as king, a hand just sort of magically appears and begins to write something on a wall, and it's in a language that nobody can understand. 
And everybody's thinking, snap. I mean, if, if a hand just sort of magically appears and starts writing something on the wall, wow. And so Belshazzar says, oh, my gosh, what, what is this? So he calls, he remembers his dad's reign, and he calls this young man named Daniel, who he heard is of these Jewish people that might have some gift of interpreting things. And so he says, Daniel, what, is that, what does that say? And Daniel looks at it and he goes, ooh. Um, actually, this is what it says. It says um, that the Lord has numbered your days and is bringing them to an end. And he has weighed you in the balance and he's found you wanting. Your time's up. God's giving your kingdom to the Medes and the Persians. And that night, Belshazzar dies. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> and then because Belshazzar dies, then a series of events happens to where God raises up another pagan king named Cyrus, who conquers the Babylonians. He's a Persian. He conquers the Babylonians. But this pagan king is favorable to the Jews. And so God moves on the heart of Cyrus to make him, to make him favorable towards the Jews. And Cyrus one day stands up and issues a decree and says, These Jews, these people who I inherited, they were the captives of the Babylonians that I conquered. These Jews, these, these slaves that I inherited... I'm going to issue a decree that they should return to their land and rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. Sovereignty. Can anybody say providence? And so he issues this decree, and this is in about 586, and then begins a hundred years of history of God sending his people from captivity back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls that are broken down because God's promise is true. He promised Abraham and his descendants, which we read in the Old Testament, are not ethnic Jews, but they're people of faith that believe in God. He promises them a place. He promises them offspring. And he promises them blessing. And so these next 140 years towards the end of the Old Testament are the story of these men like Ezra and Zerubbabel, which if we have a fifth child and it's a boy, rocking it out, Zerubbabel Evangelista. What an awesome name that would be. And Zerubbabel goes back and he builds the temple back. And then Nehemiah in about 445 B.C., still under the captivity of these pagan kings. Cyrus has died now. And then a man named Xerxes came along. And then another man named Artaxerxes came along. And he's the king now. And Nehemiah... These kings are still favorable towards the Jews. And Nehemiah, as we'll read these coming weeks, is about to go to his pagan king. And he's going to give him favor and allow him to go back. <laughs> here's, here's, here's point number one that I want you to get. Is, is that, is that God, is, God is faithful to his promise and controls all things for his glory. From nations to individuals for the good of his people. But we got a point out of this gig and we haven't even started reading the book. God, God is faithful. He, look, he, his people disobey and, and in their folly turn from him and he uses a pagan king to punish them. And when that time is enough, he causes that pagan king to keel over, then raises up another pagan king to show them favor and send them back to the place that they were intended to be in the first place. God is 
sovereign, providentially in control of all things, good and bad. That is good news for, for people like us who live in, a, in an insecure world. I think that's awesome news. And then, and then secondly, and this is, this is before we even begin reading the text, is, is that, and I love this, is that God works with people who are an absolute mess. People like us. People like the nation of Israel who in their folly continue to turn from the gracious and good hand of God. People like us as a church body and as individuals, as husbands and wives, we're, we're a mess. We're a mess. And as we begin to read Nehemiah, the Holy Spirit may come into your heart and it may, just be, it may bring conviction to you. And I want you to know that if there's conviction that comes on you today or throughout this series, that is the good and gracious hand of God turning you back to himself. Just like this history of the Old Testament where he continually turns his people back to himself. Okay, so Nehemiah, we have this city that's the all-important city of God. And Nehemiah is going back to rebuild the broken down walls. The temple has already been rebuilt with Ezra and Zerubbabel, and now Nehemiah is going back to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, this is really interesting. Because I've read a lot of different opinions and scholars on Nehemiah these past few weeks. And this news that Nehemiah is getting about, this is his, one of his brothers, and Hananiah, is either his brother or one of his close relatives, comes. And now remember, Nehemiah is in captivity with Artaxerxes, is away from Jerusalem, away from Judah. Maybe he's never even been there, but certainly because he's a Jew, he's heard the stories of the great city, the great temple of David, the great temple of Solomon, and how it used to be. And certainly he's heard the story of how 141 years ago, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, destroyed this temple and destroyed the city. Certainly he's heard this news, and he knows that Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt and is not in the state that it is. And these brothers come and give him this news, and he acts like, I mean, it's so profound that he, it's like he heard it for the first time and it just hits him like a weight. And most of the commentators would say that it would be almost impossible for this to be the first time that Nia understood the state of the city of Jerusalem. But yet, when he hears this news, he sits down and he cries for days. It would be, it would be the equivalent. Of, this happened 140 years ago. It'd be like, it'd be like if I got up here and I said, Crosspoint, men and women, I have terrible news. Shots were fired at Fort Sumter, South Carolina. And the South is rising up and succeeding from the Union. Let's mourn and fast and pray. You'd be like, uh, that was 140 years ago, Civil War. Think about this. Think about this. What if I walked in and I said, ladies and gentlemen, December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed 
Pearl Harbor. Ah, I tore off my shirt and I put on sackcloth and I began to mourn. You'd be like, easy, killer. Easy. Why do I mention this? Because God is doing something in Nehemiah's heart, I think. It's not new news. It's probably old news. But he begins to hear it in a new way. Nehemiah, maybe for the first time in his life, because the Holy Spirit has moved on him, is beginning to consider the reality of the situation. And maybe for, for the first time this morning, the Holy Spirit would move upon your heart and just help us realize the reality of what our situation is as American Christians in the middle of the Bible Belt where there's a church on every corner, but most of our city is lost. I mean, we live in a world that is selfishly obsessed. The average person that would call themselves a Christian in the Columbus area has three or four or five Bibles. There's TVs that pump in supposed Christian messages, and there's bookstores. And, and yet, for the most part, and I, and I am not one of these guys that likes to bash on the church because I believe the church is the bride of Christ, and I believe... I I am here to serve the bride of Christ, so I'm not this guy that bashes on the church, but for, in large part, the church in our time and day lays in waste. And we, for the most part, as people, don't really care. It's optional. It's a thing to criticize. It's a thing to go to for a while when you want to get yourself back in order, and then when something happens, there's maybe some disagreement or you have some tension with a friend in the church or the preacher says something that offends you, you just go find another one and you settle down there for two or three years and then he ticks you off and then you go somewhere else. And, and you know, college football's starting, so we're going to go do our thing and I'm going to hang out and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to show up occasionally. But when I need it, it you know. And, and just as God has spoken to the Old Testament people and said, through Jerusalem... And through this temple and through this city, I want to make my name great. Now there's been a shift in the New Testament. Of course, God, Acts 17 says that God doesn't live anymore in a temple that was made by human, humans. But he does, he did, just as he planned this temple in the Old Testament, he now plans to work through this, this body of people called the church through people like us. And so why was Nehemiah so upset? Why did it hit him like this? And why did he tear off his clothes and mourn for weeks? Because he knew how important the church was. The Holy Spirit hit him and he began to see how critical that this was God's plan. This was God's fame. This was God's name. And this, it cannot be like this. And the burden of God hit him and he couldn't stand it because he he loved God. And the, the Holy Spirit, likewise, in our day, has to hit us as a people to where we can't stand it. Where the church, not only our church, but every church, should be great. Where Jesus is preached. Where sin is confronted. Where people are born again. Where relationships are mended. Where marriages are strengthened. We've got to have a place like that. And if we have a bunch of people who don't see that, we'll never get there. We've got to care, man. You've got to have a burden. Does it hit you? Does it hit you? And when you drive by a church, man, do you just, do you just scoff? Do you just, you just look kind of down the end of your nose at another denomination? Do we just, do we just kind of with haphazard, nonchalant indifference 
view the church, and that, that is so unbiblical. And it, it convicts me. And I am, I am I, as I read this, I say, God, do I, does my heart break for your city, for your spiritual city, the church, in our day and our age? Nehemiah began to see what his reality was. And you know what? We can have, we can do really good services. We can have a good band and decent preaching and children's ministry with name tags and, you know, rock climbing walls and flavored cream. And we can create an environment and an experience where you're entertained and we can be the sorriest church in the history of mankind. Unless we collectively together just sort of have this burden and this desire that look, the church is jacked up. It's a mess. Not just this one, but every church. We are, we are imperfect people trying to serve a perfect God in our time and our place. And it is a mess. And until we all sort of see that, and until, every, until young husbands get a hold of that, until, until young single guys, until, until women, until boys and girls, until people see that this is their gig, this is, this is my time and my place, and I'm not a paid professional. I'm just a guy like Nehemiah who cares deeply about the cause of God. In my time, we will be treading water for the rest of our days. And does that break our hearts? Or are we okay with air conditioning and boats and golf tournaments and college football and beach trips and recreation? And what what are we okay with? Are we okay with the fact that most of our city, even though there's a church on every corner, is dying and going to hell? Are we okay with that? Are we okay? Because, Because we're selfish people that just want to grab some stuff out of the Bible so we can live our best life now. The, the God of heaven's got to hit us and knock us down to the point where we are like Nehemiah, where we just say, God, 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 you've got you've to you move on our hearts and you've got to show us reality. And, and we'll read here in just a second. We've got to react. We've got to react in a way like Nehemiah for the sake of our church, our city, in our time, in our place. Let's continue, verse 5. And I said... O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Listen to this. This is so important which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah does not blame shift. You know know what my natural thing is? When things aren't quite as the way they should be in my world or in my church or I just, you know, my, my first default position was, you know, if, if Jennifer would do this, then I would be able to, you know, if the folks that are volunteering at Crosspoint would be, you know, come on, if, it, if and Nehemiah doesn't blame shift. He says, Lord, we have sinned. I count myself in that group. And I and my father's household have sinned as well. Men, and I, and I know, look, the scriptures, everything applies to men and women. But you guys know my thought here, and I hope this doesn't rub you ladies the wrong way because 
the last thing I want to do is come across like some chauvinistic punk. But do you realize that, and I, but I firmly believe this. I may be wrong. This may be one of those things that I get to heaven someday and God will say, no, nah, you, you were off on that. But here's the deal. I think that the problem with the world starts with men who don't assume responsibility. And, and the solution to the problems in the world are men that will assume responsibility. I'm not saying that men are more important than women. I'm saying that men are strategically put by God in a position to lead, and when they abdicate their responsibility, when they blame shift, and when they just kind of let their wives lead, and then it just it never works like it should. I can look into the eyes of a young couple, and I can see a woman trying to lean forward, trying to lead her family, trying to impart Christ into their kids, and I can see the dad who's checked out. I can see, I can almost see it on people. And it just never works. When the husband needs to be pushed by the wife, it never works. So one of my prayers to this thing, as we look at Nehemiah, is that God would get a hold of passive, blame-shifting men and light a fire under your fourth point of contact, and he would, he would do something in our hearts. It's a military term for you. Feet, hands, knees, fourth point. Culture's messed up. Your wife's not all that she should be. The church is so inadequate. Your boss is a jerk. The market is tough. The world is hard. It's a challenge out there. Is that going to be your storyline, though, for the rest of your life? Or is God going to move on your heart and in the midst of a broken down culture and a broken down city and a broken down world, you're going to say, okay, we have sinned and I have sinned too. Now, God, have mercy on me. And as much as it concerns me, I am going to begin to order my world so that I can be used to rebuild my wall in my place and my time. Are you going to be that man or are you going to be the guy that constantly has a negative attitude about everything? Letting your wife lead you, shifting from church to church, getting upset at friends, letting your wives have their little arguments, and you just kind of being on the side, just being a pathetic guy who looks forward to college football season, to college football season, and fishing. Are you going to be that guy? Don't be that guy. I have been that guy. Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. And women, you, 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 look, I'm not advocating, I'm not, I mean, I'm not advocating a, uh, men that lord their authority over women. I'm, that, I'm advocating men who are gentle, strong, tender warriors like Jesus who lay down their lives for their city, for their church, for their wives, for their children, for their friends. God, give us men who don't blame shift. We have acted, verse 7, very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Remember, God wants to work through this city 
this temple, this place from which his name would go out. And again, there's been a shift now in the New Testament. It's not a place, but it's a people that God has chosen that he wants to make his name great from. So it is so critical that we and many other churches in our city are great, that we are Jesus-centered, that we preach the scriptures and not fluff, that we love people, that we reconcile, that we do interpersonal relationship well, that we are gracious to one another, that we receive the sinners, that we, that we are a place where anybody can walk in and hear about Jesus unashamedly. It is so important because God has chosen that to be the place that his name dwells in a people, in a people like us. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I want to ask you two questions real briefly and then we're going to move into a time of worship and response and communion. Number one, what is your reality? What's our reality? Let me handle this from two different angles. Number one, our reality as a church body is I think we're off to a, a relatively decent start. We've had our bumps and problems along the way, but God has been, just as he was to Israel in their folly, he has been gracious to us. But yet there's, there's so much work to be done. <laughs> like every now and again, I'll get an email from somebody kind of wanting to delicately point out some problem with Crosspoint, and they've been around for a month. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know. Like all the problems here are probably somehow because of me. I mean, I'm the only pastor this church has ever had. I know. I know. I know, I know that sometimes it's hard for people to connect. I, I know that people slip through the cracks. I know. I know. I know. I know. Come on. That's why we need you to not be a belly button gazer. And we need you, man. We need you to feel a burden, a burden beyond yourself. Come on. The church is jacked up. I know. We, we need you, man. We need you. We need you. Come on. The, the way to joy is not through finding stuff that helps you get along better, but it's getting your eyes off your stuff and serving something that's greater than you. And that's why, that's why the best thing we can do for one another is not to do stuff that would help you better as an individual, but to lift your eyes off of ourselves so that we can see what God has for us together. I know the church is jacked up. That's our reality. That's why we need you. That's why we need your pettiness and your, and your selfishness to just fall off of you. That's why I need to not be so insecure and wonder who's going to stay and go. I know. I know. I know. Do you see that reality? Personally, now, let's not look corporately. Personally, where's your life, man? Come on. Is it in rubbles? Is that even a word? Is it just run down or the walls broke, broken down? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to blame shift? This is what people generally do. We either... It's so guilty that we just fall into passivity. We escape into entertainment or pornography or recreation or whatever. Or we 
Or we blame shift. Is that what you've been doing? Don't, don't do that. Come on, come on. All of us, we all, our, all of our walls are broken down. Let's graciously together say, come on, we've, we've got we've to embrace our reality and we've got to react in the way that Nehemiah has reacted. And so what's our reality? Has that hit you yet? Look, at the end of this message, which is coming in just a minute or two, I'm not going to try and turn the tables and say, all right, it's going to be great now. God loves you. Hurry along, little children. Come back next Sunday for a lollipop. What I think needs to hit us is, like Nehemiah wept and mourned for weeks. And the problem with church culture is we're we're always trying to make each other happy. You can do it. It's like a big Tony Robbins infomercial. We're like on the beach with white linen clothes and khaki pants and white teeth. Yeah, you can. If you don't know who Tony Robbins is, it's just junk, man. It's junk. Sometimes you need to just be bowled over by the Holy Spirit. It needs to hang on you for a while. And you don't need to be happy. Do you know like half of the Psalms are lamentations? In fact, there's a book of the Bible called Lamentations. But we want to come in and say, Yay! J-O-Y, joy, 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 down in my heart. I mean, we can sing that. I mean, we should sing that. But every now and again, we need to say, God, help us. Help us. And lean heavy on us, Holy Spirit. Because the world is broken. And the city walls are broken down. And the church is a mess. My marriage is in crumbles and my kids are hanging out at the mall with their pants down around their knees. And Not my kids and my marriage, but you know what I'm talking about. It could be if I don't continue to be the man that God's calling me to be and my world's jacked up and it needs to hit you. And if you're that person, that's okay. Because remember, God... Works with people who are an absolute mess. <laughs> he, he calls young men out of debauchery and lust and wickedness to be the pastor of churches. He calls passive, blame shifting men and women to be the type of people who he builds churches on for the sake of his name. Second question is, what's your reaction? And I end with this. Nehemiah's reaction can be summed up in two ways. Repentance, which is not this, oh, shucks, things aren't the way they should be. Repentance is a God-ordained, it's a God-given gift of sorrow that causes a change in us. It begins to set us on a new path. It's a, it's a pivot. And it sets us towards following God. Repentance is godly sorrow. that hangs on us and begins to change our direction. Nehemiah reacted with repentance and prayer. God, give us favor. For your name's sake. Because there is much work to be done. There is a mission to be accomplished. There is a church that loves Jesus, that preaches Jesus, that lives like Jesus, that's gracious, that needs to be built. There's a city that needs to be rebuilt. 
So God, give us favor for your name's sake. Well, usually what we do on the first Sunday of the month is we do communion together as a church. And um, I'm thinking that if we do that, it might jolt some of us out of what God is doing with us personally and send us into kind of, you know, rote first Sunday tradition. And so we're not going to do it collectively. What I'm going to ask you guys to do is come back, and I want us to begin to worship and respond. And um, we're just going to open up communion on both sides as you are led to come and do it. I'm not going to ask you all to stand and come down because that may jolt you out of this heaviness that God may have on you. So guys are going to come back and sing. And I just, I just want the Holy Spirit to sit on us. I want him to sit on us and give us a picture of what reality is and the need, how important it is that we and many other churches in our area are great. And then in my heart, I want it to produce a tension between what is reality and what it needs to be. And, I, and I, I just, I want the Holy Spirit to sit on me, not just for the sake of a message that would move you, but I want to, Him to sit on me so that it creates a tension in me that motivates me like it motivated Nehemiah to face fierce opposition for the sake of the name of Christ in my time and my place. Because we're going to read over the next... 12 chapters in Nehemiah, we're going to read about a struggle, man. And so I, 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 want to, I want the Holy Spirit to sit on us and to illuminate our eyes and to give us the gift of repentance and prayer. If during that time you feel led to receive communion, please do. The communion bread, if you're not familiar with it, represents the broken body of Jesus that took the penalty of our sin. Reynolds referred to it earlier. It's Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but didn't live, and he bore the penalty that we should have bore but didn't bore, and he bore it for us so that all who would turn to him in faith would receive new life in his presence so that we in our broken down rebellious state could receive new life and become part of his plan. That's what that bread represents. The juice represents his blood, which is a new covenant of grace. It means now God does not judge you by whether or not you can keep a law, but he judges you by Jesus who kept the law for you. And now when you fail, the grace that Jesus gives you isn't just grace to forgive, but it's grace to empower you to live so that he can work through pardoned rebels like us to do great things. And if you want to meditate on that, if you want to remember the cross and examine your life in light of that, then I invite you to come as you are, as you are, um, led to come and receive communion on your own. Take it back to your seat and receive it on your own. Stay down here and pray or whatever. But um, Holy Spirit, sit on us. And Lord, as we as we prepare to respond now in worship and prayer, repentance and communion, 
I am so selfish. God, I am so selfish. Would you give me the gracious gift of making more clear my reality to me so that I would lift my eyes off of my belly button and I'd begin to see all that you want to do through me and through us and in me. Lord, I confess that my natural tendency is to blame others or to be cynical or disappointed. And I Lord, would you, would you give me the great gift that you gave Nehemiah of confession and repentance? And then would you burn a fire underneath me and my brothers and sisters here that would motivate us to repair the broken down walls of our lives and our church and our city so that your name could be great and so that our lives can be satisfying and full of joy as Jesus is made famous in our place. Do that, I pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.